Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labour and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquillity than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thank you, Sandra. Uh, I'd ask you to keep your Bibles handy. Um, we're going to work through this chapter. There's some unusual things in there. There's some hard-to-understand things. Um, and if you can follow along as I explain it, then that will be, uh, hopefully, to your benefit. So please, um, yeah, please do keep it handy. Uh, for a long time now, I've, I've uh, enjoyed the music of Simon and Garfunkel. Um, I don't know if you have. It's, it's quite enjoyable music. Um, first, just apologies for all the music references through this series. You're going to have to put it up with it until the end of Ecclesiastes because so many musicians seem to wrestle with the same things as Ecclesiastes does. So there's going to be a bit of music in this. I, I apologise for that. But anyway, Simon and, Simon and Garfunkel is great. Uh, I, you know, I find it awesome, you know, pottering around the house on a rainy day sort of music. It's, it's melodic, it's haunting, it's a bit melancholy, uh, but it's nice. Uh, they're really lovely songs. And one of my favourite songs uh, is the song, I Am A Rock. You may be aware of it, uh, I Am A Rock. Uh, it's, it's kind of all about being alone um, and almost a celebration of it. He, you know, he sings, I am a rock, I am an island. He talks about building himself in his little fortress. He's got his books and his poetry and therefore he's, he's okay. He says, I have no need of friendship. Uh, don't talk to me of love. It's, it's kind of the ultimate introvert song. You know, I love being in my house on a rainy day by myself, that's good. And yet, whilst it celebrates that kind of being alone, that kind of isolation, when you listen to it, it it's kind of a sad song. Actually, it is just a sad song. It, it moves from defiant, you know, being alone is good and I love being by myself, and it kind of gets more despondent throughout the song. And 
you get to the last line and it, it's, it's almost whimpered. You know, the last line is, and a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. And then the song just kind of almost pathetically tapers out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's as if the song itself admits, yeah, being alone is good at a time, but being lonely is terrible. So isolation isn't a safe haven, it's a prison. Being alone or withdrawing from people, it might feel nice for a time, but being lonely, that is apart from people and being unable to change that, that's an awful place to be in. Uh, you, you, if you were here during lockdown last year, you would, have, you would have felt that. Being isolated in that way was awful and, and what a relief it was to, you know, at the end of that, be able to go out of the house and see people who weren't your family. Like, <laughs> wasn't that a sheer... No, our families are great, but like, what, a, what a relief. Because we sense this, don't we? You know, loneliness, isolation, it isn't actually good for us. In fact, studies have shown that it's dangerous. Uh, loneliness has been linked to depression, which is perhaps not a huge surprise, but it's also been linked, uh, I read this week, to poor cardiovascular health uh, and cognitive decline. And one uh, researcher said that social isolation, and I quote this, posed risks for premature death that were as big or bigger than obesity, smoking, less than 15 cigarettes a day, and air pollution. <laughs> there, there are serious side effects to loneliness. It's an issue. And yet it's also been shown that feelings of loneliness are on the rise uh, in Australia and in fact around the world. You know, this is a problem. This is a problem that we feel. Isolation and, and removal from one another. We, we wrestle with this. So how do we respond to it? Can, can we fix this? Can we find a way out of this issue? Well, here the teacher has some hard words for us. Because what he tells us is that in most of our cases, our isolation is self-inflicted. This is actually a hole that we dig ourselves into. And that's hard to hear. We're going to see that. But there is also a hope here. There is also a path out, and he's going to show us that as well. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, the reason the teacher wants to talk about isolation is, uh, once again, he's looked at the world. We, we see him doing this throughout the book. He, he looks at the world, he sees something, and then he, he speaks about it, he analyzes it, and he does that again here. But what he's seen is not just, you know, slightly negative. What he's seen is absolutely devastating to him. Look at, look at the way he concludes in verse 2 and 3. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. What a remarkable thing to, to conclude after looking at the world. Look at the world and say, it is better to be dead than to be alive. And in fact, it's better never to have been born and never even tasted the evil of the world and how cruel it is. That, that's an astonishing thing, isn't it? You know, a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw his conclusion, you know, life sucks and then you die. This is even more grim. It's better never to have lived at all. Why? Why is his conclusion so dark? Well, look at what he's seen. It's there in verse 1. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed 
and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. The teacher looks at the world, and he sees oppression. He sees the world as it is. It's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world. It is cruel, it is harsh, and it is unrelenting. This, this oppression of the powerful on the vulnerable is, is crushing. It's, it's kind of literally what the, the word means. It's a, it's a crushing. It's a downtreading of the weaker by the more powerful. Uh, you know, imagine living life with uh, you know, a 40-kilo backpack on constantly. Just imagine how much that's going to slow you down and make life difficult. That's the kind of picture the teacher has in mind here. That is the weak under the oppression of the, vulner- of the powerful. And it's desperate. You know, he says they, they, they cry out. And there's no relief. There's no help for them. There's no comforter. There's simply oppression by the powerful. Uh, I've been reading a book recently which um, I think quite helpfully defines what power it is. I think sometimes we think of power and we think, you know, powerful people, people in authority or people with lots of ability or, or, or influence or whatever. This book says power is the ability to make something of the world. So power is not necessarily dependent on your position or on your income or anything like that. Power is the ability to make something of the world, the ability to make meaning or to make resources or to make a lifestyle or an opportunity. See, the powerful are able to do that. The powerful are able to make and shape their world. The oppressed cannot. They're they're held down. They're unable to influence the world. They're unable to change even their own situation. And so their oppression is for them a trap. It's something they're stuck in. And as a result, they're crying out. But why is this? Why does this happen? Why is the world this shape? Well, it's here we actually have to remember the shape of this book, isn't it? We have to remember the the theme of this book and actually the theme of this passage. Remember what the teacher is doing throughout this book is unpacking this striving for gain, this pursuing of profit, this trying to get ahead. He's critiquing and unpacking that all throughout and he says that's the root cause here. Oppression isn't just something that is. Oppression is caused by this chasing for profit. And when you think about it, that's quite logical, isn't it? Because gain isn't usually victimless. When we gain, someone else loses. We might not see it directly, but if, but if I get ahead, someone else falls behind. In this fallen and broken world that we live in, gain is essentially a zero-sum system. One gets ahead, one is pushed back. Maybe... Maybe think of it like that weird wrestle you get when you're flying. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You know how planes are. You've got your three seats. You've got window, middle, aisle. You know, the dreaded middle seat that, that no one ever wants. And in those three seats, you have four armrests, three people, and six arms. Now, you can kind of see the problem, can't you? you you've, you've probably experienced this problem. Who gets the armrests? Because it's not just first, but it's not just first in, is it? You know, window. Window has the window, so they can stretch out that way. Aisle has the aisle, they can stretch out that way. Middle should get the armrest, shouldn't they? 
But it becomes that kind of power struggle, you know. I'm, I'm bigger. Well, I'm actually quite timid, so I never get the armrests. <laughs> the kids do. Um, <laughs> that's sad, isn't it? But, but, but that's the problem. We can't both have it. You can't share the armrest. It's not that very big. If one person has it, the other person doesn't have it. And that's kind of the, the, the picture of life that the teacher is painting here. Life is of haves and have-nots. It's of the powerful who get and the oppressed who don't, who are held down, who are limited. And he says at the root of all of this, the reason behind it all, is our striving, our pursuing of more, our chasing of gain. That creates these power imbalances. Getting is the result of having power. And not having is a result of being oppressed. He didn't have to look far to see that in his world. And neither do we. This is not a problem that just existed in his day, is it? You know, we, we read stories of uh, sweatshops in Bangladesh and the, the awful conditions that people work in there to provide our cheap goods. You know, we read of uh, underpaid labour, sometimes in our own country, but, but rampant around the world. People working for pennies. I was reading a story the other day of the, the huge numbers of people who still exist in slavery around the world. Like we, we think slavery is something that existed in the past. Actually, it's all across the globe. Think of sex slavery and the exploitation of women in those situations. We look at babies, you know, the ultimate vulnerable um, being aborted by the powerful because they're, 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 they're in the way. We look at the way our society treats the elderly, you know, ignoring them, silencing them, um, asking for euthanasia because the powerful have decided that that's a good thing for them. It's oppression. Think even of the cost of your advancement, of your place in life. You know, we, we don't think of ourselves as terribly powerful, but actually we are, aren't we? We do have the ability to shape our life and make meaning in our life. And, and just think of what has gone into making your life. Think about the people who've suffered for the precious metals that are in your phone or your technology. The people who've laboured over your clothes, your shoes, your cars your lifestyle. See, when we step into the teacher's shoes, when we stop and we think and we listen to the world that we live in, it's the same conclusion, isn't it? Behold the tears of the, oppressors, of the oppressed. It should grieve us. <laughs> Because our gain is their loss. Our power is their oppression. And our striving is their cries. Now the teacher's not actually advocating that we look at that and then go and kill ourselves. That, that, that's, that's not his solution to this. He's, he's trying to draw the gravity of the situation down for us. He's trying to remind us that for lots of people the world sucks in ways that we cannot imagine. We are immensely privileged. And he's challenging us to consider our life, to, to look at our life and say, where is the, the injustice that we are contributing to? Where can we fight for justice? Where can we make changes and where can we make choices that will help to alleviate the suffering of the oppressed around the world? How can we be part of the solution rather than the problem? 
Now, of course, there's a deeper question here at play. And that question is, how does it end up this way? Why, why is this the result of our striving? You know, surely just trying to live isn't a bad thing. So, so how can we do that well? What, why does it seem to end up in this way? Well, it's here that the teacher diagnoses for us. He, he diagnoses why this happens, and he does it with two different cases. The first we see there in verse 4. Uh, look with me at verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Why is it that we strive? Uh, why is it that we pursue gain and profit so much? Well, the teacher says, actually, the root cause is too often envy. It's not just desire, but it's actually envy of others. Now, of course, competition, healthy rivalry, that's okay. But how quickly does it become actual just jealousy or envy that is, that's driving us? I mean, think of the way that it just prompts our desires. You know, the, the neighbour gets a new car and we think, well, wow, that's a nice car. Our car's not very nice. I probably earn as much money as him. Maybe we should get a new car. You know, you turn up at the caravan park and every other caravan is new or big or nice and has a few more bells and whistles. Maybe mine could be too. Our friend takes a holiday. Think, boy, I could really use a holiday. I could use one like that, maybe even a bit nicer, because, you know, we, we, we say it, keeping up with the Joneses. I mean, it's not just a saying, is it? We, we kind of write it off as just something we'd say, but, but it's true. It's true. We see how we, it's, it's how we live. We, we see what other people do. We see what they are able to do, and we think, I want that. If they can have it, why can't I have it as well? We're driven by envy. And the teacher says, meaningless. It's empty. It's futile. It's pointless. You'll never get there. There is always going to be someone who has bigger and better and nicer and newer. It is meaningless to strive to outdo one another. Envy is empty. But our striving is also selfish. And he unpacks that in verse 5. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Actually, miserable is, is evil. It's, it's even darker than just miserable. He starts with two proverbs. You see the two proverbs there in verse 5 and verse 6. Uh, doing nothing is self-destructive. Doing too much is self-destructive. <laughs> Neither extreme is good, so be content with what you have. And yet he says it's also futile even to, to pursue contentment, even to strive in that way, when it's just for yourself. How foolish is the person who gives their life to their work, who does more and more and more, he says, who, who has no end to their work, no end to their gain, no end to their riches, who keeps on, keeps on trying and gets so caught up and never stops to ask, for who? 
Um, the, I, I think the ESV gets the question there better. There's, you know, he, the NIV says he stops and he asks himself that. Um, the Hebrew is a bit ambiguous. I, I think the NIV gets it better. This is what it says. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? You know, he's, he's so caught up in the chase, so caught up in trying and, and getting and, and getting and getting and getting that he never even stops to question himself, but why am I doing this? Who's, who's this all for? Not only does he not enjoy it, not, but he doesn't even know who to enjoy it with. He, he's all alone and he hasn't even realised it. And the teacher says, it's meaningless. How stupid to give your life to gain, not only to not enjoy it for yourself, but not to be able to enjoy it with anyone else either. It's futile. It's empty. See, what the teacher says is, behind so much of our striving, behind so much of our pursuing in life, is simply self driven by greed, driven by envy, driven ultimately by us. I want for me. And he says that's the reason that we are isolated from one another. That's the reason that we're alone. Because this life of more, this life of chasing more, is a life that pushes other people away. It is an isolating life. Nothing illustrated this to me more uh, than a lolly scramble I once saw. You can learn, you can learn a lot at a lolly scramble. Uh, I think I was about 12, uh, reasonably young, and we were at a kite festival, I think in um, Heritage Forest in Launceston. Now, lots of people, uh, lots of kites, and they had a big uh, lolly scramble planned. Like it was like the, the kind of the highlight event of the day. You know, huge lolly scramble. And someone had this very creative idea on how to do it. They had this enormous kite up, and it's you know, like you don't use a, a string for an enormous kite. You use a cable, like a proper cable. And they got a small kite to run a basket of lollies up this enormous cable, you know, 50 metres up in the air. And, like, not just a little basket of lollies. This was, you know, a couple of kilos of lollies. And when it got high enough, they would pull the string and all the lollies would just pour out into this kind of open field. There was a lot of lollies and there were a lot of kids there. Now, you've got you to picture it. Big open field. All the kids had to wait around the outside. You're, you're talking hundreds of kids waiting in a ring, eagerly watching as this basket of lollies slowly travels up this cable eyes pinned on it, then it stops and they all cascade out and their kids just come in, you can't just, like a wave, like this wave of children just rushing into the centre to get their fill and it was terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was horrific to watch. You know, like the Lord, the Lord of Flies is, is nothing, it was the Hunger Games in there. It was, it was punching, it was kicking, it was pushing and wrestling. Like, no exaggeration, there were blood and tears everywhere afterwards it was it was a war zone and who got the strong got the timid did not get and there were no friends made that day i can i can guarantee that there were no relationships built that day because greed and self are isolating now that's not a pretty picture 
But unfortunately, it is a good picture of humanity in general. We want, we strive, we get, and all our getting and our striving isolates. It sets us against each other. It breaks down what relationship is possible. It puts us over and against each other. All our gaining pushes others away. I mean, just, you've experienced this. I know you've experienced this because we all experience this. Uh, Think about a friend or a used-to-be friend who is so obsessed with work or so obsessed with their career that, you know, they're always cancelling plans or they're they're never available. You can't get a hold of them. Uh, You you can hardly ever see them anymore. And, you know, that that distance builds. Their, Their obsession isolates. Or, th- or think of that co-worker who's, you know, so driven at work, so focused at work, that actually, even though they've been there for years, no one even knows them. You know, they've got no friends. They're, they're isolated by that desire. Think about the miser in your friendship circle. You know, they've got time, but they don't have pennies because they're always counting them. You know, every time you try to do something, they're, they're talking about the cost or they're talking, you know, setting up the cheapest option and it becomes really draining. I mean, it's not fun, is it? They're, they're so focused on that that they're pushing people away. Maybe it's the traveller, you know, the one who's always away uh, chasing the next adventure, looking for the new place, looking for, for the new experience. And then they, they wonder when they're back why they don't have meaningful relationships. Maybe, maybe it's even the parents. You know, so invested in their family, all about their kids, which is great, don't get me wrong, but all about their kids to the extent that they're not about anyone else. And they're cut off. See, our striving is isolating, isn't it? Because isn't that us? You know, I know to to different extents and in different ways, isn't that us? Chasing things and pushing others away. And when we're taught to strive, it's, it's the Australian way, isn't it? Strive, get ahead. But we're not taught that our striving is alienating, that it will isolate us. And that in the end, that is disastrous and meaningless and futile and miserable. The teacher says, evaluate your life. Look at the choices that you're making. Look at where you're striving. Could it be that your loneliness is self-inflicted? Could it be that it's the natural result of your striving for gain? Or could that be where you're heading? Could that be the danger that you need to be aware of? Well, the teacher says, here's a better way. Here's a better path. And it sounds very simple. (laughs) Look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either one of them falls down, uh, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The teacher says, get friends. (laughs) It's that simple. You need friends, so get friends. Because at the end of the day, 
if you've got a mate, life is a heck of a lot easier. <laughs> That's his conclusion. It's pretty simple. Now, we often try to Christianize the, the, this. You, you may have heard it at weddings, particularly the last bit. You know, we say two is good, three is better. So, you know, make God the third strand in your wedding and it will be in your marriage and it will be unbreakable. That's, that's true, but it's not what the passage is talking about. Look at the passage. The passage is talking about fighting, not about marriage, if you see that. One may be overpowered. That is, a one-on-one -on -one fight is not really a good prospect. Don't do it. Get a mate to help you if you're in a fight. <laughs> that's not official. Like, don't get into fights. But, and if you get into a fight, get two mates to help you. That's even better. <laughs> that's actually what he's talking about. And that's kind of his point here, isn't it? One friend is good, lots of friends is better. <laughs> Community is best. That is desirable, that is good, and it's actually secure. That's a secure way to live. Get friends. But, there's always a but in Ecclesiastes, but there's an issue. Look at verses 13 through 16. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw all that, that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now this is a weird little story. It kind of, it just sits there. It's kind of hard to understand. But the point of it is quite simple. The, the, the story is of a youth who, who came from nothing, who became the king. You know, he's part of this popular movement. Everyone loved him. Everyone celebrated him. And what happened then? The next generation didn't like him. They turned their back on him. They forgot him. And that's the point that the teacher is trying to remind us of. People are fickle. People are unreliable and undependable. You know, we've all had that friend who's let us down, and that is the problem, says the teacher. That is the problem with people. Even crowds may flock to you. You might, you might be head of a popular movement. You might be the most loved, most popular person until you're not, because people move on. And, I mean, you might remember Steve Jobs. He, he was the Apple guy. You know, it's only a decade ago, so it's not that, that long ago. I mean, what, what a fandom Steve Jobs had. You know, he packed out stadiums. He had, he had his followers who, you know, who dressed like him, which is weird, uh, who spoke like him, who, you know, preached his product everywhere, insatiably. I mean, just talk to people about Apple stuff. It's ridiculous. But then Steve Jobs retired from the spotlight, and all his fans moved on. And now they, I don't know, they follow Elon Musk, probably. Now it's Steve who? Because that's what people are like. People are unreliable. I mean, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? Isolation is futile, so get friends. But here's the fly in the ointment. People, friends, are unreliable. They're fickle. So how do we solve this conundrum? How do we find meaning in this meaningless situation? Because clearly we need people. 
In fact, the Bible says we were created for people. Uh, right at the start, when, when God made man, he said then about that man, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. You can find that in, in Genesis chapter 2. Actually, companionship and, and help is, is a good and essential and created thing for us. But what happens then? Well, ironically, man strives for something that it shouldn't have. And immediately, not only is our perfect relationship with God broken, but our perfect relationship with other humans as well. Now, this is what God says is the result of that striving in Genesis 3. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Do, do, you, do you see that? You're going to want, you're going to strive, you're going you're to do that and it's going to be fruitless. And you're going to be ruled over. See, already there's hints of what we see in Ecclesiastes. Hints of oppression, hints of isolation, hints of fighting and selfishness and futility. And that's the world that the, that the teacher of Ecclesiastes lives in. So, so what now? Where do we find this meaning? Well, there's a great story in the New Testament. You can find it in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Now, to understand that story, you need to understand a little bit of background. Uh, you need to understand that tax collectors were scum. <laughs> they might have been ordinary people, but they were scum of their day. I mean, firstly, they collected tax. <laughs> Not really a popular pastime in the best of times. But secondly, they did it for the Romans, you know, the oppressive colonial power who everyone hated. But thirdly, they had free range when they collected tax. So the Romans might say, I need 10 bucks from everyone. They could collect 20. Give 10 to the Romans, keep 10 for themselves. It was a great way to get rich. It was a terrible way to make friends. They got rich at the expense of their countrymen. And what we're told in Luke 19 is that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. So like, he is the hobnob, the, 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 the top guy. He is very wealthy and even more alone. He is isolated. His chasing of money has left him by himself. doesn't have a friend to speak of. And then something remarkable happens. He meets Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to him. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus, this completely outcast, hated man, and says, I am rescuing you. I am saving you. Lost and alone though you were. You were reviled, you were isolated in your meaningless striving, but no more. Now you are home. You see what he says. He says a son of Abraham. What he means is a part of the family part of Jesus' family, you know, the, from the start of the service, a part of that people that God is gathering. See, this, this most outcast, this most isolated man, this, you know, humanity at its least human, at its worst, Jesus welcomes that man and says, you can be part of the family. You can be isolated no more, but you can belong. Actually, we see the very next thing that happens in Zacchaeus' life is he has a big feast and everyone comes. <laughs> And in that, in Jesus' acceptance of him, Zacchaeus is changed. This is what he says. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. 
is a different man, isn't he? Not a man striving for gain anymore, but a man giving because of Jesus. See, Jesus is the key there. Because Jesus alone fixes that ancient flaw within us that the Bible calls sin. Jesus alone forgives. He alone takes that ultimate isolation upon himself. I don't, you remember at Easter what he cries out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly alone. And because of that, he restores us to himself and therefore us to each other as well. If you try to fix your loneliness with just people, it will work, but only for a time, because those people will let you down. They'll disappoint you, they'll abandon you, and they will forget you. Isolation can be covered, but only temporarily. It can never be fixed. That is, apart from Jesus. Because Jesus heals our most fundamental relationship, our relationship with God. And that healing, that flows, that overflows radically into the rest of our lives. It, it, it changes us, it transforms us. It makes us new and it makes us part of something. Part of God's people, a something that lasts forever, even beyond this life. And that never changes. Your, your, your feelings of it may ebb and flow, but that truth never changes. If you are in Jesus, you will always belong. You will never, ever be alone. Uh, before Liverpool soccer games, you, you may have heard this, the, the, the crowd sings their unofficial anthem, it, you'll never walk alone. It's, it's, you know, go and listen to a, a good recording of it. It's, it's amazing to hear a stadium, you know, 50, 70, 80, 90,000 people singing that together. It's pretty spine-tingling. And yet it's not true, is it? If you're a Liverpool player who has a form slump, the crowds will go from singing the song one minute to booing you every time you touch the ball the next. And if you're dropped or traded out of that team, they will forget your name and never speak it again. But God's people aren't like that. You'll never be dropped from the team. You'll never be forgotten or moved past. Because you don't belong on the basis of yourself. You belong because of Jesus. And because of him, your futile loneliness is healed forever. So you can strive, and you can strive in this world. You can seek whatever gain, wherever it might be found. You can, at the end of the day, gain even the entire world. But you'll do it alone. And how futile. How futile to have it all but no one to share it with. Let alone all the people you'll leave crushed by the wayside, meaningless. Or you can come to Jesus. He's strived for you. He's come to heal you. And he's come to make you part of something, to make you part of his people forever. There is meaning, and it's beautiful and it's true, and it's rich, 
There is belonging and it's with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you for him who has come into our loneliness, who has come to restore and to heal us, to make us whole. We thank you for his death and his resurrection, which heals that relationship that was broken by our sin with you and brings us to you. You know, as we, as we sung before, that we, can call you, uh, that we can be called your children and your friend. Father, what a hope, not only to know you, but to know your people and be part of your people, welcomed in. Father, we ask for your forgiveness, because when we look at our lives, we see so many places where we simply strive for worldly things. It's so empty, it's so isolating. Father, help us not to pursue these things, but to be content in Jesus and in belonging to his people and the comfort that brings, not only now, but forever. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing.